stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Of course, uh, one of the big stories this week has been this uh, proposed Rogers-Shaw deal. In a, a merger in, in a lot of respects, but technically it would be Rogers acquiring Shaw. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $26 billion is what we understand. Now, there have been a lot of questions around, you know, what, what is this new behemoth going to look like? How does it change the telecom industry? Is the government going to allow this to go ahead? Where's the focus, though, on what it means to consumers? Now, look, I'm sure the government's going to pay some lip service to that point. They'll throw some conditions most likely onto this deal that says you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to keep rates here. And this whole idea of regulation as a way of, of trying to protect consumers. But what about actual competition? Because the regulatory side hasn't seemed to work too well, because ultimately it seems to come back to protecting certain industries, telecom, airlines, banks, agriculture. There's quite a list where there's a real protected industry and consumers pay the price. In his column in the Globe and Mail today, Andrew Coyne makes the argument that it's time to put consumers first. You can read it at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew Coyne, columnist for said Globe and Mail, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. Uh, to that point, though, about, you know, the, the government is going to certainly dress all of this up, I suspect, in, in the name of the consumer. And they're going to force this new company to, to do a bunch of things. But is that really prioritizing consumers, in your view? No, it's prioritizing particular interests that the government or the regulators want to favor for either ideological or political reasons. And the industry is only too happy to play along. Uh, this is an age-old game, not only in, in this industry but in others, where uh, the regulators uh, um, set some sort of condition, the industry hems and haws, but they always know that in the end they'll be able to cover that cost out of rates. Uh, the, the, the regulator is never going to regulate them into a lack of profitability, which is one of the reasons why regulated prices are always higher than market prices. You know, a business goes out of business because they can't match their competitors' prices. Everyone says too bad, but that's the way the, the, the game goes. But, you know, if, if, if the government were ever to regulate anybody out of business, there'd be a, an enormous fuss. So the rates are always set at a rate that, that, that will cover off those costs. And, and basically the excess gets distributed to, very, to whoever, you know, cries the loudest for it. But the consumer is the one that pays for it in the end. And that will be no different here, you fear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so they'll, they'll, you can already see Rogers lining up the things. Well, we're going to spend a lot of money on 5G. We're going to spend a lot of money uh, on broadband, rural, rural broadband, that kind of thing. Well, 5G may be a great thing. And if, if the synergies that are supposed to come out of this business help them pay for that's great. But ultimately, it should be the consumer that decides whether they're willing to pay the higher rates that are, that, you know, whether the, the benefits of 5G are worth the higher rates. So if Rogers were willing to make that kind of investment in the presence of full-throated competition, that'd be one thing. But if it's basically going to be paid for out of, the, out of um, unwilling consumers, then that's a different matter. It's interesting because we, we have something called the Competition Bureau. I mean, it seems to be something we profess to care about, but... With there, there's very much limits to that. And when it comes to certain industries, this being one, uh, certain sectors of agriculture being another, 
financial, um, you know, the, the airlines, as you mentioned, all of these in your piece, there's this whole element that certain industries have to be protected, that there's some kind of national interest at, at stake here. And how did we how did we get into that that line of thinking? It's an old con. <laughs> it goes back really as old as Canada in some ways of, of business, corporate interests wrapping themselves in the flag and finding all too willing uh, uh, dupes, sometimes on the left, strange, strange bedfellows, uh, that somehow, you know, Canada's national uh, identity would be at stake if, if a foreigner owned the phone company. You know, the foreigners make the phones, the foreigners make the computers, the, 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 the apps, the software that run the phones. Uh, you know, all that stuff is foreign. That's, that's not a problem. But God forbid that anybody uh, from outside the country should own the wires or own the cell towers. It, it's nonsense. Um, and it's not as if they would all become foreign. But we, we, the question is whether foreigners should be able to compete in this industry. So the Competition Bureau has a better record as regulars than most of them in terms of favoring the consumer. As you mentioned, they have a fairly limited ambit of what they can, uh, what they can regulate on. Mm-hmm. So even if, for example, in the course of the various regulatory hearings that go into this deal, they force them to hive off Freedom Mobile, which, is, of course, is the issue that's at stake here. It's not the cable assets because the cable or the, the Rogers and Shaw own cable in different parts of the country, so they wouldn't be lessening competition than that. But in wireless phones, where Freedom Mobile would, would essentially be, be taken out of the market or absorbed into the Rogers empire, uh, that's where you could see the competitive impact coming. Well, even if they hived off free, uh, Freedom and, and kept the status quo, the status quo is we have amongst the highest wireless rates in the world. So I, I hope we can look beyond just lessening the damage of this potential potential from this deal into how can we have a more competitive wireless industry generally and then beyond that how can we start thinking about the consumer interests not just in wireless but in all these other protected sectors whether it's not just telecoms but airlines where we have amongst the highest airfares in the world or financial services where we have amongst the highest mutual fund fees in the world and you can go down the list but those are the three biggest offenders and not coincidentally it's because they are run as by and for the interests of the companies that make up those industries these duopolies or oligopolies rather than in in the interests of consumers well it's not a coincidence either that we pay a lot for milk we pay a lot for cell phones we pay a lot for airfares we pay a lot for you know mutual fund fees as you note in your column that it's not a coincidence that that these are in these protected sectors there's an obvious correlation there and ultimately, it comes down to, you know, the broader question of what are we running these industries for? Are we running them for the benefit of the people who are in them, to give them something to do or to guarantee profits to their owners? Or do we run industries, we have industries, we have an economy for the benefit of consumers? Uh, and ultimately, of course we do. That's why we make things and, and services, is to be make useful goods and services for each other at prices we're willing to pay. And the closer we hew to that idea, the more productive an economy we have. And the closer we hew to the idea that, no, consumers are basically there to be harvested by producers, then the fatter and lazier and stupider an economy we're going to have. So there's a much broader interest and a much broader issue at stake here than just the particulars of these, of these uh, individual industries. And that's sort of part of the point of the column was to get people to sort of stand back from it. And let's start from a first principle here of, of whose interests should we really be favoring when we're setting up policy. And we should really be angling it so that producers have to please consumers to make a buck. Uh, rather than, you know, finding ways to force consumers to pay businesses that can't make a product that p- consumers would wa- pay for willingly. 
Well, and, and it inevitably gets back to the flag waving because it is, I think, demonstrably true that if, you know, United or Delta or Southwest were all of a sudden in the equation and flying, you know, Calgary to Toronto flights, prices would come down. If I had the option of Verizon or T-Mobile, cell phone rates would come down. If I could go to the grocery store and buy American milk, the price would come down. But now it's about, well, what about these Canadian jobs and these Canadian companies and, you know, the, the importance of, of having big players in these sectors and, and all of these arguments rush back to the forefront. Yeah, and people would like you to think it's a matter of balancing the consumer interest against the producer interest, or it's a matter of balancing the interest in lower prices against the desire for, for higher wages. And it's a false choice. When you protect certain sectors and drive up prices, yeah, maybe you protect a few jobs and, a, and, a, and, a, and some businesses in that sector. But what always gets lost in that is you do so at a price, and the price ultimately gets paid by other workers and other industries. Because if consumers have that much less purchasing power because they're forced to pay inflated prices for these protected goods and services, then that's much, that much less they have left over to pay buying other goods and supporting other jobs and workers' wages in other sectors. So it, it, it's not a matter of protecting jobs. You're simply trading one job off for another. You're protecting the job in the protected sector at the expense of, of not just of consumers, but of workers in other sectors. This is one of the great fallacies of protectionism, that it somehow protects Canada versus foreigners. It doesn't. It protects some Canadians from other Canadians, <laughs> which is not just economically harmful, but it's divisive. Well, again, your latest piece, it's up at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, I always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Uh, my pleasure, Rob. Take care. Andrew Goyne is a columnist uh, for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. His latest, it's time to put consumers first. How about we start with the Roger Shaw deal? And so in, in all likelihood, there will be some conditions, but this deal will go ahead. And probably one of those conditions will be to spin off Freedom Mobile. There was another piece in The Globe today that uh, looks at some of the bidders that are lining up to buy Freedom Mobile should that happen. And, you know, frankly, maybe that makes sense. But as Andrew Coyne points out, I mean, that, that basically leaves us with our status quo and our Canadian consumers well served by our status quo in this sector and in a number of other sectors. Or are we OK if the, the trade off is that we have big Canadian players? Allowing in foreign airlines to, to run domestic routes would hurt Air Canada and WestJet. Allowing, you know, Chemical Bank and, and others to, to come in would uh, hurt Canadian banks. Allowing American milk and cheese on the grocery store shelves would hurt Canadian dairy producers. Do we have some obligation, I guess, to, to have less competition and pay higher prices in the name of protecting those businesses in those sectors? Because there are other sectors where none of that applies. So it does seem like some double standards, doesn't it? So there's some big questions here. What, what do we want government policy to, to achieve here? What is the goal and who are we trying to protect? I want to go back to the We Charity scandal, which really ultimately, I suppose, is a political scandal. Decisions made by the government regarding the student service grant program last year. And uh, perhaps those involved in those decisions who should have but didn't recuse themselves. But at the same time, how much is this about We Charity, which has uh, certainly grown into a very large and influential organization? Now, 
Their fortunes have certainly changed since this whole situation came to light, but it has shown a spotlight on some of their practices. Now, we had this week, finally, the, uh, the Kielberger brothers, the founders of this charity, appear before one of the Commons Committees looking into this whole situation. And there were certainly some rocky moments uh, for the Kielberger brothers, in, including what seemed like a contradiction uh, about a message to uh, a top official in the prime minister's office, which essentially thanked him for making this, this program happen. So someone who's been following all of this very closely and digging into uh, We Charity and its operations uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. His name is Jesse Brown. He is a publisher and host at Canada Land. CanadaLandShow.com. Jesse, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Nice to talk to you. Uh, so I'm curious in terms of how you approach this story, right? Because there's the political side of it and, and decisions made at the government level, but there's also the story about this charity and how it operates and, and why it was so influential in the corridors of power. Which to you, I, I guess, is the bigger issue or is maybe more the, the unanswered question at this point? Without question, the We Charity issue, the We Charity scandal. At this point, we can call it, for, for as a certainty, a we, we Charity scandal. And that was the story that we were on before there was any political dimension to it. And that, that, that's where the biggest questions, I think, still lie. Is what, what exactly was going on in this, in this, uh, with this charity that's been in thousands of our schools and our lives? Our kids have been engaged with it. And it's not like it's all a mystery, because what we do know... We, by their own description, this is uncontroversial. There was crime. There was crime uh, with, within their charity uh, in their Kenyan operations. Other news organizations than ours have confirmed what we originally reported: donor fraud. They they have sold the same projects again and again. They say, "Well, don't worry. Uh, all the money went to charity. Take our word for it." Mm-hmm. But but we, what is their word worth? Because they have told remember and this is what the political scandal did reveal to us when the first question was asked hey you got this massive government grant and we know that you've engaged with uh, the trudeau family with all these different speaking arrangements did you happen to pay them anything for those speaking engagements they said no that was their original line to the media no we didn't pay them anything and then canada land revealed we had we had the actual invoices Right. You absolutely did. You paid them with charity money. And they're, they're under oath, they said, we didn't charge the, the government any administrative fees for this proposed project. It's right there in the budget administration. You know, it, it goes on and on. So to me, the question of what actually happened in this charity, what were we actually volunteering on, what, what were the money that Canadians donated and raised, where did it actually go? Uh, there's more than enough reason for us to be demanding answers to that. And, and to me, there is a valid political question here, but, but it's a bit of a, you know, we've gotten really hung up on the when did the who know what when, and, and I mean, those are valid questions, but they are certainly not the most important questions here. Mm-hmm. So how did they become so influential? That you know that they would be the the sole recipient uh, of this this program. They would be asked to administer this. That they would have such a tight relationship with uh, the Trudeaus and you know with Bill Morneau and and all of these these powerful and in- influential people. And it was clearly by design. They they wanted to to build an organization uh, that was influential. But to what end? 
I mean, it's an excellent question. I think it's a wider question uh, than just what you know. What, how did they get so close to power? Why did we all glorify and raise this organization for over twenty years? Um, what were they telling us and selling us that we liked so much? We liked the idea that we could change the world just by buying their chocolate bar and not the other chocolate bar. We liked the idea that we could go on a trip that was fascinating and see go on safari and then spend an afternoon, you know, digging a ditch or, or laying bricks and think that we were actually doing charity work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, why did so many corporations feel like this was a wonderful, wonderful organization? Um, and, and why did so many politicians from so many different parties um, stand next to them? And then all the celebrities. I mean, what is this mixture of commerce, retail, and charity? What is this version of charity where mega companies that do some things around the world that hurt developing countries but can somehow look like they're benevolent donors to those countries? There there are some really big questions. With with the specific question of the Trudeaus, this was just sort of, um, you know, all the stars aligned. That that, that might be more positive than, you know, this was a situation where, you know, we charity, uh, and most is like a $60 million a year charity. That's what they're used to administering. And here was uh, the government saying, we want you to administer, I don't know if you count this as a half a billion or, or, or $900 million. Um, and, and this idea that because they had a network among high schools, that they were uniquely equipped to get together volunteers from colleges, which never made any sense, from universities, post-secondary. Um, the lack of vetting, the relationship between the families. I mean, absolutely, we need to figure out what happened here. And, and then the direct ties with Marneau, the, 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 you know, we, we revealed the ties to his daughters. Um, they, they were marketing back to the government. When they, when they sent the public service materials, they made sure there were pictures of Margaret uh, Trudeau on their stage to remind, uh, you know, so there's these technical questions of did the PMO, you know, was there a direct phone call? Did they matter? But let's not let's not kid ourselves. It's already documented. Everybody involved in this knew that there was a special relationship between the Trudeaus and the Kilbergers. And if they didn't know, uh, we charity reminded them. So whether they were talking to the PMO or the public service, they were absolutely trading on that relationship. And look, and I don't know if this this is a relevant factor in any of this. Maybe it just speaks to the weirdness of the organization. But th- there's almost a, a cult like vibe to this, and and especially around Craig. I mean, Mark seems a little more in the background, but you know, Craig went from this you know this kid who was getting all this media attention because he wanted to change the world, and he grew up into this this adult with this kind of weird following. I mean, do, do you get a sense that that's kind of a part of how this this organization operates? Well, I'll leave my opinion out of it and tell you that when our reporter, Jaron Kerr, was investigating the organization, speaking to, uh, I think, a couple dozen um, former employees, the word cult came up again and again and again. And the stories we heard about the reverence, this glorification, this idolatry of Craig and his story, this almost Jesus-like story of how he became this crusader for children. And and the story, there's parts of of the facts that don't bear out of his kind of superhero origin story. But he was, he was absolutely this magnetic figure at the center of it all. And the culture of the place where people told us that they were, they had to memorize the values of living we, the we movement, and be able to recite them upon command. Uh, and we heard of, you know, fits of rage from both Kilberger brothers, but particularly Mark, um, in an organization where people were 
in, in times living communally, uh, working around the clock, where if you lost your job, you lost your home in some cases, and where everybody was united with it by this idea that they were the special people who were going to save the world, and you did not want to be, um, you know, thrown under the bus or left out of that. It, it, it was a way of life. And th- these were relationships that w- the WE organization forged with their volunteers and employees when they were minors. You know, we, we, we let WE into our schools, and we sent our kids to WE days, and, you know, uh, as a society, we set up our kids to glorify and revere these two guys. So there's some concerning things going on there, too. So let's get some thoughts on, on what we heard this week. And as you pointed out yesterday, and this was weird as well, they, they produced their own version of this testimony with some slick production values in, in the whole nine. But, I mean, it was it was an awkward few hours. A lot of it was, I'm, I'm sure, rehearsed. They seemed well prepared on some points, but they did get caught in, in a couple of awkward moments, uh, maybe even some lies. You could say, what did you make of it? Well, I, I didn't find, yeah, I, I know what you're referring to, and, and I, I my feeling was that it, they were not, telling a credible story. Um, they, they said that they had nothing to do with this, with Ben Chin. And then, uh, and then, you know, Polyavra says, well, then what is this? And right. let's give them benefit of the doubt here. Let's try to work with their premise, which is, okay, uh, I don't know this guy in the, in the prime minister's office, Ben Chin. I never had anything to do with him, but I was new on LinkedIn. And I told my assistant to send out some, some welcome messages. And she sent out a hundred or he sent out a hundred, and, and my assistant has, uh, you know, leeway to personalize the messages. Is Craig's story, and that's why when he sent out an invitation to Ben Chin, he said, "Hey, you know, thanks for helping to shape this government program." And then Ben Chin doesn't miss a beat and says, "Yeah, let's get our kids working again. Let's get the youth working again." I find that very hard to believe that a, a stranger. In the PMO, we get a message thanking him for helping him to shape the government's program. But I'm, I'm like, open to strange things. I know that, you know, getting assistance to write personalized messages, that isn't necessarily strange. And I guess what I would ask is, if that's true, I would expect that there would be many other people in the PMO and in government who received almost identical messages. Because if Benchin was a stranger to Craig Kilberger's executive assistant then I guess the personalization was, well, who is this? It's Ben Chin. He's in the PMO office. Well, we're, we're, we're sending thank yous. You know, thank all of you for helping to shape this government program. Uh, so I, I, if Craig's story is true, maybe it is. I would think that he would be able to produce many more messages that are almost identical. And I, I, I do not believe he's done that yet. So the, the, the story is, is not over in any sense, right? But w- what to you... Are the outstanding questions, or where where should this all go from here? Where's the money? Where's the money? They, they haven't answered that yet. They they they, um, they have this joint commercial charitable model, and there are dozens of private companies that they own, and those companies have assets. Now they say, oh, the profits go back to the charity. I'm not talking about the profits, the assets, the real estate, the money that resides in those private companies, and all of that money is tied to their charitable endeavors. How much of it is is in there? How much money did they amass in privately owned companies when they were supposed to be doing charity? That's the, to me, that's the bottom line of all of this. And until we know that, and and not through some, you know, their friends hiring uh, an auditor not to do an audit but to do a review 
of what their accountant can, you know, they've got more tricks and, and feints and the semantics. Obviously, we need the grown-ups to come in, and uh, journalists are doing what they can. CBC, Bloomberg, Canada Land, we've all independently come up with the same revelations. I mean, there's serious revelations. Uh, child abuse, Bloomberg found in their school mm-hmm. in Kenya. Crime in their Kenyan car- uh, charity, Canada Land found. But um, who can actually procure, get the books open? Uh, the IRS can force the books open. The CRA, well, CRA is limited to their Canadian charity. I think this is a matter for law enforcement. I, I, I guess I agree with with Charlie Angus and with Reed Cowan, one of their former donors, who's, who's called for law enforcement to open an investigation. I think that uh, a, a holistic inventory of their entire organization is more than justified by what we've already uncovered. All of this and more, CanadaLand.com. Jesse, uh, appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. All the best. Jesse Brown, uh, host, uh, publisher of Canada Land, CanadaLand.com. And, uh, yeah, they've been doing a lot of uh, reporting on, on We Cherries. So, too, have other media organizations. And so, yeah, th- there's very much a side of the story that, that you know, begs the question, what does this charity do exactly? You know, they're really good at image. They're really good at branding. They're really good at getting into schools. They're really good at getting into the corridors of power and selling trips and, and all of this. But are they actually making a big difference? So ultimately, yes, it might have seemed like the liberals were doing We Charity a big favor last year. And you know what? And maybe that was the intent. But it's turned into something much different. You had a text earlier said Trudeau has single-handedly sunk the Kielberger brothers. And maybe that's true. It certainly I don't think was by design. But maybe that's, that's the end result here. So some, some great insight from, from Jesse Brown on some of the unanswered questions here that go well beyond just, you know, the politics. I think we kind of know the basics here, um, you know, that the, the liberals were rewarding their friends, that uh, the prime minister, the finance minister should have recused themselves from this decision. Welcome back. Rob Rickenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. 974-8255 is a number. Much more still to get to. Uh, Andrew Coyne with the Globe and Mail joins us after 2 o'clock. We'll talk about government priorities and why consumers aren't a top government priority. So let's, uh, we'll get to that coming up after 2 o'clock. Look, we talked at the outset about the situation uh, with the two Michaels in China, and obviously a concerning escalation here on China's part uh, to put the two Michaels, quote-unquote, on trial. For what exactly, it's not entirely clear. And now we have this this farce of a two-hour closed-door trial this morning for Michael Spavor. Ended without a verdict. We really don't know what happens next. And then it looks like maybe Monday uh, the same thing is going to happen uh, with uh, Michael Kovrig. Now, look, unless, unless China has some other plan up its sleeve here, I mean, it seems pretty obvious what the outcome is going to be. Uh, the Chinese courts almost always, over 99% of the time, uh, find accused guilty. And it's pretty easy to do when the deck is so stacked, especially in the case uh, of the two Michaels, which have not had any kind of meaningful consular or legal access. In sharp contrast, by the way, uh, to, to the high-priced legal team that is working tirelessly with Meng Wanzhou, who is facing, of course, extradition to the United States. And obviously, look, there, there's a link between these cases, no doubt about it. 
So how did it get to this point? Where does it all go from here? What kind of options does Canada have at this point? Joining us for some further thoughts on uh, where things stand here, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Margaret McQuaig-Johnston, Senior Fellow at the Institute of Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Margaret, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to talk to you again, Rob. So, like I say, very troubling developments in in terms of what we saw earlier today, what we'll likely see on Monday. What what did you make of it all, first of all? Well, I think we now have real proof that uh, this uh, whole procedure that China's been putting our two men through is a sham. Uh, And we saw a two-hour court case on ostensibly national security. If there were evidence, it would have taken a lot longer than two hours. But the fact that it was so short just proves that they have no evidence. Uh, you know, the, normally in a court procedure, you would go through every document and make the case and all that. Um, but in China, the party determines, especially in sensitive cases like this, they determine um, the, the outcome and the sentencing. And so this is just a pro forma thing. And uh, in addition to that, Canadian diplomats were not allowed to attend the, in the courtroom, and nor was there any public or media. So there's no witness to the fact that this was a, a, you know, a trial without evidence. Um, and you just really have to feel so sorry for Michael Spavor having gone through this and for his family. No kidding. I can only imagine what they're going through. Um, so why now, do you think? I mean, you know, these two have been languishing in, in Chinese prison for some two years now, and then to just uh, out of the blue uh, announce that these matters are going to trial. Do, do we have any ideas to, to what's going on here? Well, I think the the meeting going on in Alaska right now is the real key to the timing. Um, of course, the U.S. Secretary of State is meeting with his counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and uh, this is the first real meeting that they're having with the new Biden administration. It's a, an opportunity to do a reset on the relationship, and it started off being fairly testy. But uh, the, I think what China often does in negotiations is it does something as a surprise just before the negotiations start to put their opponent on their back foot and demonstrate that uh, they have the, the power and the, the, uh, they're in control. And uh, certainly um, uh, Blinken would have been infuriated by the timing of the trials. Uh, he participated several weeks ago in a, a three-hour um, launch of Canada's initiative on um, of the Decla- Declaration of Arbitrary Detention, which had the support of 58 countries uh, plus the EU, and just in the last few days has three more countries, so now it's 61, and others are, are looking at joining as well. Um, and at that uh, launch, Blinken made a very strong stand that this kind of arbitrary detention is completely unacceptable. And we've seen uh, him uh, talk about the, the, the uh, Michaels as, as well as um, President Biden as, um, you know, human beings are not bartering chips. Right. And he said that he stands shoulder to shoulder 
with Canada. And that actually physically happened today, shoulder to shoulder. At the courthouse, the Canadians were not allowed inside, but the Americans, the British, the Swedes, the French, the German, um, uh, uh, UK, Australia, uh, eight other countries besides Canada were standing there shoulder to shoulder to demonstrate that this globally is now seen as uh, as offside of, of the norms. And we heard from uh, Stavor's lawyer after the case that Stavor had seen them waving at him. Uh, they were waving at all the cars and vans that were going into the facility because they didn't know which one he was in. But he saw them, and that would have given him a lot of moral support. Yeah, it certainly would have. And, and you know, as you say, I mean, th- there's an opportunity here for us to stand with our allies and, you know, and, and use that to deal with this situation. And, and hopefully we can also help our allies deal with, with some of these other situations I mean, if we're prepared to do so, right, this is probably our, our best course of action in, in helping to secure the release of the two Michaels. But it's probably going to have to mean that, you know, we're going to have to stand up and, and stand shoulder to shoulder with the Americans, with the Australians, with other countries when it comes to maybe issues that we would perhaps prefer to avoid. Right. So we're going to have to take a stand here. Well, that's right, and we'll have to see what those are over time. Uh, but this is a very good start uh, to see that kind of moral support from all those other embassies uh, helping Canada to to uh, support its um, basically kidnapped hostage. And um, so I think that was the first real action we've seen out of this arbitra- arbitrary detention uh, initiative. And I think it was a very positive one. Biden himself has said that his uh, modus operandi going forward is twofold. Number one, human rights are at the front of his international agenda. And number two, he will be working with allies. And he's uh, even been working with the UK on designing something called the D10, uh, 10 democracies, which are the G7 plus Australia, South Korea, and India, to uh, work together to design uh, policies to stand up to China, and also to collaborate on technologies that will compete with Chinese technologies. Now, what of Meng Wanzhou in this whole situation? The extradition hearings continue, and, and this, of course, has, has been at the center of all of this, and, and China's retaliation by kidnapping two Canadians. Um, but has the American position on, on this changed at all? And do you, do you see any change in the situation if and when Meng Wanzhou is either extradited to the United States or released? Well, um, I think there are two scenarios. Number one, if uh, China wants to do a reset of the relationship with the U.S., as they say they, have, they would like, um, one of the best ways of doing that would be to release our Michaels. If they're not prepared to do that, then probably we're in a situation where um, they're there until Madame Meng comes home, because that's what China has always been saying. While they say that they have done some crimes, uh, the next thing that they say in terms of uh, solving uh, the, their situation is Canada must look first to its own mistake. And yesterday, for the first time, they said the U.S. 
must look for, first to the, its own mistake by charging her. So uh, they are pointing the finger at the U.S. now, which is a nice change because they've been pointing it at Canada for more than two years. Um, Biden and Blinken have both said that they will not interfere with the Department of Justice process. Uh, so we'll just see how things uh, unfold in the um, judge's decision in Vancouver and then what happens uh, going forward from there. All right. We'll leave it there, Margaret. Appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Good to talk to you, Rob. All right. Likewise. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, uh, Senior Fellow at the uh, Institute of Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa, and uh, also uh, on the advisory board of the Canada-China Forum. So some thoughts from her on uh, what's going on with the two Michaels and, you know, some of these bigger questions about Canada-China uh, relations, Canada-U.S. relations, and, you know, where we fit in here in the grand scheme of things. All right, welcome back. Rob Brigginbridge with you. We've got the Friday free-for-all coming up after 3, so we'll be taking your calls for an hour. Anything on your mind here this afternoon? A few other things we'll get to between now and then. Uh, but wanted to come back to the conversation uh, around Canada and China. And obviously, at the center of all of that is the two Michaels. And as we talked about earlier, uh, some concerning escalation, I would call it, on China's part by just uh, out of the blue announcing that the two Michaels are going to go on trial and we saw earlier today what that looks like, a two-hour behind-closed-doors trial that ended without a verdict. And we have no idea what the, the status of uh, Michael Spavor is. And then we'll expect the same on Monday with uh, Michael Covering. So th th this is probably the biggest issue between Canada and China, but it's not the only issue. And so as we look at how to kind of navigate dealing with China, certainly we got to look south of the border as well in terms of maximizing a leverage with the Americans, building that relationship with the Americans, coordinating with the Americans, trying to be as much as we can on, on the same page when it comes to matters pertaining to China, because our interests obviously do align. And I think as we see in the example of the two Michaels that, um, you know, using the Americans to help put some pressure on China definitely improves the chances of, of resolving this situation. Uh, some new research out from the McDonnell Laurier Institute Expanding on this point, looking at the uh, possibility to expand opportunities for Canada-U.S. coordination on China. You can read at mcdonaldlaurier.ca, but joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, Jonathan Berkshire Meyer, uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, I should say, Senior Fellow and Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Jonathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. Uh, so let me just get your sense, first of all, in terms of, you know, where things are at with the two Michaels, this escalation on China's part, and how that's kind of casting a shadow over these meetings in Alaska. Well, yeah, thanks. I think it's a, it's an unfortunate period right now. And, and sadly, I don't think it's overly um, unpredictable. I think that this was a situation that many envisioned. We hope that it didn't get to this point. Um, but now we've gotten to this stage where uh, where Michael Spavor and, uh, and next week Michael Kovrig will be put on trial. Uh, again, no verdict has been uh, has been released, but I think there's a lot of problems around the process, as you, you may have uh, outlined in, in previous segments. Uh, you know, obviously, not only Canadian officials, but other diplomatic officials from other embassies that try to observe 
this trial weren't allowed inside. Uh, so it is quite concerning. Um, I think that it is interesting to juxtapose this uh, alongside the U.S.-China meetings, uh, which were happening just at that same time. And to look at this from the U.S. lens, too, uh, the Biden administration, I think, has, has taken quite an interest and has publicly stated on a number of different occasions um, that uh, other country's citizens should not be taken as part of hostage diplomacy, and I think specifically referencing to the release of both Michael. So this this seems to be an area definitely where the U.S. and Canada are becoming much, much more aligned and much closer on. And that's that's encouraging, right? And so there certainly seems to be, I think, as you say, a willingness on, on the part of the Biden administration to, to make this an issue, make this a priority, and, and to also work with allies. But I guess that's got to be a two-way street, right? We can't just say we need the Americans to help us, and and that's the extent of it. I think we have to be willing to do our part. So what does that potentially represent? Yeah, well, I think it's we have to understand that some of the challenges with the situation with the Michaels is, is, you know, heart-wrenching as it is, it's only one part of a a structural, um, you know, suite of challenges that China poses. And, you know, thinking about the situation of the Michaels, it's not um, an isolated situation. We've had issues before with the Garretts, uh, who had, you know, a different context in the case, but in many ways the, the outcome and results, I think, were relatively similar. It was a form of sort of economic coercion, or sorry, in this sense, uh, a hostage diplomacy type of coercion uh, aimed at uh, getting Chinese uh, aims. Um, so I think we've we've seen this story before. So I think we need to recognize the broader suite of challenges that China presents and look at at ways that we could contribute in the international community alongside the United States uh, to mitigate some of those challenges. Some of those will be defined uh, to you know Canada's own national security interests, but other others are shared interests with uh, with the U.S. and and others in the region. Yeah, I think there are a lot of shared interests, right? And 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 that hasn't really changed. I mean, clearly there there are going to be some differences between the previous president and the current president with regard to China or with regard to working with allies. But but overall, I, I think that position is still consistent. There's a lot of bipartisan consensus, I think, in the U.S. on on you know the threat and the challenge that that China poses. So in in that sense, it has a lot changed from from the last administration to this one, or even the one before. Yeah, I don't think much in substance has changed. I would agree with you on that point. And I think you just have to point to the the most recent meeting in Alaska for this. Uh, You know, one thing that I've been saying uh, about the the last week of meetings, uh, first, I think it's important to contextualize that um, Secretary Blinken and uh, and his counterpart, uh, Secretary Austin, the defense secretary, uh, initially traveled to Japan and South Korea. So the U.S.'s two principal treaty allies in Northeast Asia. And then rather than sort of taking a side trip, to, uh, you know, a very quick side trip to, to meet the Chinese officials in mainland China, they asked the Chinese officials to come meet them uh, in Alaska in the middle of winter. Uh, you know, to me, that symbolism is not lost. And I, I don't think it's lost on the Chinese either. And I think the, the tenor of those meetings just at the beginning stages, some of the, uh, you know, the, the opening speeches, uh, I think, have, have demonstrated just how frosty this relationship will be. I agree. It's not the structural issues have not changed much uh, from the previous administration. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what some of those are. I mean, there there's some you know some obvious ones like these human rights concerns and what's happening to to Uyghur Muslims, what's happening in in Hong Kong, and just you know China's approach to dealing with its own citizens. That you know those are issues that we need to raise, and I think you know speaking in concert with our allies is much more powerful. But there's also some big economic challenges and trying to find ways of of countering China's influence. Um, so where do we see these, you know, the, these opportunities for us to, to work alongside the Americans? 
Well, I think we have to think about the U.S. relationship in a, in a slightly different manner than I think we have traditionally been comfortable in looking at that relationship, uh, the lens we've been looking at that relationship. So I think traditionally there's a lot of ways to think about the U.S. relationship, you know, our only border, our only neighbor, uh, obviously the trade links, um, the you know, social links that we have to the United States. Um, but I think we need to think of it what I call a global relationship. So, you know, of course, we've been in a range of different multilateral groups of the U.S. for years. But I think we've tended to really think about that relationship as it, as it you know, directly pertains to the bilateral side. I think we need to start thinking about how do we push this out? How do we have more Canada-U.S. cooperation uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, where it, it could be in other areas, too, in the transatlantic community? I think we really need to think about the strengths and the shared interests and where we can push that beyond the traditional envelope of how how we see um, uh, Canada-U.S. relationship. So, I mean, on the economic side, I mean, we've got the Trans-Pacific Partnership as, as kind of a model maybe of, of that sort of an approach. Uh, on the other side, I mean, do we need, I don't know if NATO is a good parallel, but do we need some kind of a, an alliance uh, along those lines when it comes to countering China? I think that there's already a grouping of, uh, of minilateral groups now, a, a range of different trilaterals. Uh, the U.S. is involved in most, and now the reemergence of the quadrilateral, which involves uh, India, Japan, um, the U.S. and Australia. I think these are positive developments. I think Canada should look um, and at least have discussions with, with all four parties, frankly, on you know whether there's any interest on Canadian engagement. You know, I don't think it's going to be easy to in- immediately expand uh, organizations like that. So, you know, for Canada become the fifth leg. Um, but I do think that there's ways for us to kind of become more involved. As you can see, these organizations are becoming less focused purely on on security and defense and military exercises. And the most recent um, uh, quadrilateral summit actually focused on vaccine diplomacy and other, other elements too. So I think there's yeah, you're right. I think, you know, countries in the region are more holistically looking at the China challenge beyond just uh, the, the immediate security challenges. And it's interesting, too, because on the one hand, the idea of multilateralism seems to dovetail nicely with the, you know, the foreign policy outlook of, of Canada's government. But when it comes to China policy, we seem frozen. And, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about resetting China policy, and, and that hasn't really happened. So which prevails here, our enthusiasm for multilateralism or, or our fear of rocking the boat when it comes to China? I think the problem is that, you know, multilateralism has been the traditional sort of um, framing that we've looked at our engagement in this region. And it's not completely wrong. I think, you know, we can still do, uh, we can still be engaged in APEC, which is the largest trade organization. We can, you know, we're a founding member of the Asian Development Bank, um, which I think, you know, has a lot of benefits. Um, You know, we've been a, a founding dialogue partner of ASEAN, the ASEAN Regional Forum. All those things are important. But I think the problem is it's it's a necessary but insufficient sort of way to approach the region. And the reality is the Indo-Pacific and Asia is not like the transatlantic community where you have mm-hmm. established organizations like NATO. Um, they need a patchwork. You know, it's a spaghetti bowl of different agreements, different sort of groupings in order to try to um, maintain the rules-based order. And I think that's you're going to see more and more of that. I think Canada has to sort of feel comfortable with that sort of somewhat, not, you know, uncomfortable or un, uh, non-normal sort of um, way to engage, because that's, I think, frankly, going to be the way that things go in the Indo-Pacific. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Much more at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Jonathan, appreciate the insight on this, and uh, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks so much.
All the best. Uh, that is uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller. He is uh, with the McDonald Laurier Institute, Senior Fellow and Director of their Indo-Pacific Program. Again, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.